0: Well, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15 this morning, and uh, we will begin in verse 11, and perhaps considering this morning one of the greatest stories ever told, um, often called the parable of the prodigal son. I'm excited to be here with you this morning, consider this wonderful uh, tale that Jesus tells us, an incredible parable, and and just to let you know before we get into the passage, um, I am currently heavily medicated. And uh, so if I begin to yawn uncontrollably, that is not a commentary on the interest of this sermon, okay? And so I trust that God will bless us mightily as he reveals to us his grace in this wonderful story, beginning in Luke 15 and verse 11, hear now the word of God. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Our Father in Heaven, we are, I trust, very appreciative, very thankful this morning because our Lord gave us this wonderful, wonderful story that teaches us so much about You, teaches us how it is we have made it home, and much of it we, we would be afraid to believe if it was not taught to us by our Lord here. And so we are delighted to come. Let you speak to us through the words of your Son, that we might know you better, and that knowing you, we might be transformed more into your likeness. We might bring you glory, exalt your namesake, and so help us this morning. And Father, we pray, perhaps there are some here who are living even right now in the far country. Will you not, in your great kindness to them, bring them home, help them come to themselves, that they might find a gracious and waiting Father. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my family, you can imagine, uh, Disney movies are somewhat popular. Um, The kids love all the princesses, at least the girls do, and uh, love to watch the movies. One of the Disney movies, which I find particularly perplexing, is the movie the lion king perhaps you've uh, seen this movie and there's a theme running throughout the movie uh the theme is this circle of life and they're constantly singing about the circle of life and everybody's celebrating this circle of life until one day the young prince lion asks his father he says you know dad i'm not quite sure what this circle of life thing is about and his dad says no son we're all part all life we all are part of this great circle well, the young lion's somewhat confused because he, he says to his dad, in effect, but dad, we eat the gazelles. The, the gazelles, they don't, they don't eat us, right? It's a pyramid, and we're at the top. And the father lion looks at the naive young lion with all his wisdom, and so, of course, yeah, we, we eat the gazelles, but we die, and we return to the earth, And we fertilize the ground and the grass grows. And then the gazelles, they come and eat the grass. So we, the gazelles, and the gazelles eat us. We're all part of this circle. Isn't this wonderful? Doesn't make you want to sing and celebrate? Well, the reality that all of our loved ones dying and you dying... And returning to the earth that you might fertilize it. I do not believe is a world in which we can rejoice in if we are true to ourselves. No offense to Disney, but I have been to many, many funerals. And I have not come to one where we all rejoice that the loved one soon will be a decomposing body returning to the earth. That brings grief upon us. Sadness in our heart. Now I have no doubt that some people believe that. But I don't believe it brings them any joy. We don't want to sing about such things because we're built for something different. One of the themes that we find throughout Scripture is this idea of, of exile and homecoming. We see it throughout the Old Testament that they're either being kicked out and wandering someplace or trying to get back home and back and forth. This whole idea throughout the Bible of trying to make it back home, being brought back home, dreaming of returning home. Of course, it all started at home in this garden in which God created for us a a place of creativity and uh, imagination and work and exploration and beauty and majesty and, of course, love. And it was all there At home, but our fathers—they—they rebelled against our creator's authority. They instead wanted unrestrained freedom. They didn't want anyone to tell them what to do. They they would fit very well into America. What we want is freedom—freedom to do whatever. We our hearts tell us to do, our, wherever our hearts lead us, and this is the very first sin. And as a result, they lost the father, and we have lost the father, and now we we live in a place of hunger and want and need. And Jesus comes and tells this story to describe this condition for us of a of a boy who desires freedom from his father, only to find himself in exile in the far far country. When we look at this story, and I want you to understand, Christian, that this is your story. That Jesus is telling this so that you can understand how it is that you have made it home. This is often, of course, called about called the parable of the prodigal son. Um, it's an interesting title. I'm not, to be honest, quite sure that the story is really about the son. Um, in fact, we find three parables, as you know, now know, in Luke 15, and we've seen two of them already. Remember, the, the first parable, was that about the sheep? The second parable, was that about the lost coin? I don't think it was. I think it was about the shepherd. I think it was about the, the woman who went looking for the coin. I think the main story in our parable is not this son or even his older brother, which we'll consider next week, but it's the father who seeks to bring them both home. In fact, there are 20 verses in this passage, 12 of them mention the father. In fact, the word prodigal, you may not know, it's an interesting word. If you look it up, it means two things, two meanings to the word prodigal. The first meaning is reckless or wasteful. The second meaning is lavish or extravagant. In light of that, I wonder if this parable would be better called the parable of the prodigal father. His love is lavish. His grace is almost reckless towards his children, as we shall see in a moment. And his love is likewise for you. This prodigal, this love brings him home. This is love by which he is saved. This is a story of salvation. And Jesus begins by teaching us why it is we must be saved. He begins to explore what sin is. So consider, first of all, as we walk through this trajectory of salvation, what is sin? Look in verse 11. The Bible says, and there was a man who had two sons. So. There are two sons in this story. As I mentioned, we'll look at this older brother this next week, God willing. We might call the younger brother who we'll look at today as the rebellious son and the, and the older brother as the religious son. And he's going to focus first on the rebellious son, as we see in verse 12. And the younger of them said to his Father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So this kind of starts out common enough, I think. This has happened thousands of times before. Uh, this this man did this, or this story was told, and thousands of times after. Right? This this boy, you know, wants to fly the roost a bit. Wants to get out and see the wide, wide world. What's out there? And he, and he comes to his father. In order to get out of town, he, he asks his father, for his inheritance and it's here that we begin to see the the evil or the sin in this young man's heart he's in a sense saying dad give me my inheritance because i can't wait for you to die he's coming to his father and say listen dad i wish you were dead so i can have your money but you just keep living and living and living why won't you die already You said I have this inheritance coming. You know, I'm getting older. I have plans for your money. In fact, let's just do this. You pretend you're dead. I'll pretend you're dead. You give me my inheritance. I'll get out of here. You'll never have to see me again. And I'll never have to see you again. And we all could get on with the life we want to live. Right, and and clearly, this is not something he must have thought of on the spur of the moment. This boy, I imagine, has been dreaming for many, many years what to do with the father's wealth, and and he is he getting older and older, and his dad won't die. He can't take it any longer. He can't wait any longer. He says, "Dad, just give me what's coming to me." Now, we we think about it in those terms, and we think this is this is unthinkable. Right? I mean, can you imagine if your son said something? I don't want you around. And, and I, I, I don't want the grandkids to know you. And I don't want you to write, and I don't want you coming for Christmas. I, I, don't, I don't want you in my life. I just want my money, and I want you to get out of my life. Just give me what you said is coming to me. And, and I don't know if, if you could imagine something more hurtful. And yet I think this is exactly what you and I do with our God. This is the heart of sin. Sin is wanting the Father's things more than the Father. Sin is wanting the Father's wealth and not the Father's love. Sin is wanting the Father's blessings and not the Father's relationship. So my Christian brothers and sisters, beware of your disdain for this man. You may be more like him than you realize. This is called idolatry. This is the main problem in all of our hearts that we want comfort, we want ease, we want an early retirement, we want some prestige in our life, we want a nice family, we want enough money to do the things that we want to do, and we can do it all without the Father's role in our life. It is a very, very easy for us to love the Father's things with no love for the Father. This is younger brother idolatry. Bless me and stay out of my life. Make my life easy and fun, but make no demands on me. And I'll tell you, this sin, just as we see it in this boy, is it's a hatred towards God. It is, in a sense, saying to God, I wish you were dead. Just bless me and get out of my life. And what's unimaginable is that the father agrees he consents. At the end of verse 12, it says he divided his property between them. Now, in case you want to know what the boy wants to do with this, you look in verse 13. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. You notice he le- leaves as fast as he can. Not many days later, Jesus tells us. You say, well, why does he wait a few days? Why not just leave that day? Well, the father didn't give him a lot of cash. He gave him property. The father would take his land and, and divide it. The older brother would take, he would receive a double inheritance. The older brother would take two-thirds of the property. The younger brother would take one-third of that property. This is family land. And so he gives it to his son. And now he has to convert the property into money. And so within a few days, he has liquidated his family's property into a big old wad of cash. M- mind you that this is ancestral land. This has been passed down through this family for generation after hundreds of years. This land has been in this family. It would have most likely to sell ancestral land, which would be very rare. It would take years to do. And he's just saying, just make me an offer. Just someone pay me for this. And the accumulated wealth of generations was just lost in a few days. And you think that might have cost the father something. I was reading one Middle Eastern man who was writing about this parable, and he said a Middle Eastern father can only respond in one way. He would be expected to strike the boy across the face for his insolence and drive him out of the house with verbal and physical blows. But of course he didn't. Instead of blows, he gives him his land. Instead of blows, the father surrenders his honor. His reputation has now been publicly shamed. Instead of blows, he allows his heart to be divided. It is interesting to me that the word property, at least translated property in verse, 13, uh, verse 12, is actually the Greek word bios, where we get the word life from. And I wonder if Jesus is, is employing a, a double meaning here, that he did not, not just divide his property, he divided his heart. It divided his life. He's enduring the pain of his son's departure. And you can imagine, it's very easy to, the son getting all that he wanted from his dad, and he just walks away. And maybe the, the father stands there with a tear rolling down his cheek, just wondering if his son maybe will have a glance backwards as he leaves. But he never does. His dad is dead to him. His heart is pounding with freedom and thrill and excitement. This is what sin is like. Sin is is this, this idea that we just want what you have. It's idolatry. We don't want you. We just want you to give to us. And that sin leads us to someplace. It leads us to a condition we might call lostness. This is what Jesus has been telling us in these parables. He's been showing us how the lost is found. But in the first two parables, he never showed us what lostness looks like until we come to this boy. And we see that sin brings us to a place. And Jesus calls it, it's their lost. So consider second with me this lostness. This boy who wants freedom. There we see the reason why in verse 13 he says that he wants to spend his money in Reckless living. That, by the way, is the word prodigal. Maybe your old translation, maybe the King James has prodigal living. That's the only place we find that word in this parable. He wants this lavish and reckless life. And, and so you could imagine him, can't you, going out with his wad of cash in the far country and buying the, the fast car and just cruising around town. And, and he's got the, the flat screen TV and the, the nice clothes and the opulent jewelry and the, the fancy restaurants and parties. We'll find out later that he's spending his money in, in, a, in a very immoral way. He's squandering on prostitutes and it's not hard to imagine on alcohol and and drugs and that he's just living this life. And you think, well, I wonder if he's missing the Father's house. Is he missing the Father's presence? I don't think so. Not at that point. I think it's pretty exciting for him. Right? Sin is exciting. I don't know, maybe you've heard a Christian tell you, maybe even a pastor, that they come and say, listen, sin is no fun. And, And you might be thinking... Well, you're doing it wrong then, right? Sin is fun. The Bible tells us that. There is pleasure in sin, Scripture says, for a season. This boy is enjoying his sin, there is no doubt. But it only lasts a season. As you know, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. The money is gone, which is not surprising, I don't think. If you live with no thought of tomorrow, tomorrow will come, and you will be left with nothing. We see the tragedy in this. This is father's hope that this boy would have a secure future, to be taking care of all his life. It's just gone in a season, just gone. And then a second blow comes. A severe famine arose in that country. This is the new testament term for recession right the real estate market's crashing and employment is plummeting right investments are nose diving he's got he's got uh, uh nothing nothing left this crisis his whole world's collapsing he's got no job he's got no money he has no family in fact, he has one thing, you see at the end of verse 14, and he began to be in need. That's what he has. He has need. He's tried everything, there is no doubt. He's taken the couch to the pawn shop. He's put the car on Craigslist. You know, sell immediately, best offer, right? He's taking pennies on the dollar. He's looking for a job, can't find one. He has no record, no resume, no references, okay? The, you can imagine very easily in modern times, the bank takes the house eventually. And now you're on the street. Right, You're losing weight, you smell awful, you're searching the trash for food. And finally, he takes the only job he could get, according to verse 15. He went and hired himself, or literally glued himself, out to one of the citizens of the country. That would be a Gentile, who happened to be, according to verse 15, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And so, you know, your parents get excited when your child goes out and gets a job, but no Jew wanted his son to have this job, who's gluing himself to a pagan a a gentile on a foreign land and what's worse that he sent him out into the swine a filthy animal to the jewish mindset we find his you think can it get much worse well it does in verse 16 and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate right so hungry he wanted to eat pig slop he's helpless and he's homeless he's humiliated and he's hungry and he's totally alone for Jesus concludes his plight, and no one gave him anything. A few months ago, everyone loved him. You right? have friends all over the place. Now he can't even get someone to give him a husk to chew on. This boy who sought his freedom, he ends up enslaved. He ends up lost. And Jesus is giving us a picture of lostness, isn't he? He's showing us what life looks like outside of Christ where sin will bring us. Now, this is not the only type of lostness. We'll see a totally different type next week. But for many people, this is what life starts. It starts out fun. It starts out thrilling. It starts out, you know, I'm going to, whatever my heart's desire, I'm going to do. It's, it's like skydiving. It's just this is exciting until you realize you don't have a parachute. And then it's no longer fun. And then it's terrifying. And you see, running away from God always sounds exciting. It always sounds like freedom. It, it always sounds like, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to have a great time. And the reality is when we run away from the God who has made us, who knows how life is supposed to live, when we rebel against him, we end out in the wilderness. We end out in need. We end out far from home. Now, it may be drugs. It may be alcohol. It may be illicit sex. But far more often, it may be the idolatry of your family, the idolatry of your career, the idolatry of your hobbies or your television or your leisure, and something becomes so important to us, it becomes our God, and we become enslaved to it. We We have one choice in this life, and it's really to be a son or to be a slave, right? And you refuse the sonship in which God offers you. You refuse to live in the house of God, then you'll become a slave to something else. There will be a pigsty in your future. There will be misery around the corner. And it may not be in this life, but I'll tell you, friends, it will be in the life to come. This is where sin leads us. Maybe there are some here who know this. Maybe you, you recognize this. Maybe some of you know the, the darkness of secret sin. Maybe some of you know the, the pain of some addiction. Maybe the pigsty of broken relationships. And the path you begin to walk, it, it offered you so much. It was, it was so thrilling. And now you've ended up someplace you never thought you would be. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe God wants to call you home. See, there's hope. See, up to this point, this boy has done everything he could do to keep from going home. He couldn't endure to face the Father, but you know, verse 17. But he came to himself. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And what Jesus begins to do after he shows us this boy's plight, he begins to explain to us what repentance looks like. And consider thirdly, repentance. That when we are far from God, we have to turn and come to ourselves and repent. There are four truths about repentance I see in this passage. It's not everything we can learn about repentance, but it's sure is helpful. You see, there begins with an awakening, but he came to himself, he said, right? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Repentance always begins with an awareness of your lostness. And, and not just that, but the, the goodness of God, right? He says, even the servants have not just bread, but they have more than enough bread. In the father's house, There's there's more to satisfy than all the world offers. And he begins to understand. I, I've traded the, the, I traded the, the, the folly of, of this sin for living in my father's home. I, I've 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 given up the father so that I might have the pigsty of this world. He, he he's like the psalmist who's it's coming to him. Remember the psalmist. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. He says than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Better's one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. In other words, you say, why would, why would I want to live apart from the father who just loves me? Why would I do that? Well, he's perfectly good and perfectly loving. It makes no sense. Just like this sin, the sin is, is, is lunacy. It is, it is rebellion against a perfectly good God who only wants your good. It's to reject him for for folly. And so he awakens to this truth and that his response is, I'm going to go to the father. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, you see, after this awakening, there's a, there's a brokenness in his heart. There's a, a, con, a humble confession. I like how he understands his situation. He says, I have sinned, but he tells us where, right? I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I've sinned against my God And And you may think, whoa, 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 wait a second. I see how you hurt the father. I see how you hurt your brother. I see how you hurt your family. But what do you mean you sin against heaven? It reminds us of perhaps the greatest confession of sin in the Bible. David's confession in Psalm 51. You remember David stole a man's wife and then had the man murdered in order to cover up? And David is broken against this, and he responds in confession in Psalm 51, and he says to God, against you have I sinned. And we think, whoa, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) What about the guy whose wife you took, and then you had him killed? But what David is teaching us, what Jesus is teaching us, is that sin is ultimately always first against the God who's made us. It's always first against the God who reigns over us. Rebellion. Sin is always a rebellion against God's goodness. And he understands this. I've sinned against heaven and earth. He confesses this. Now notice this is not self-pity. There is like a confession of sin that masquerades as, self, as self-pity. And Self-pity, I mean, we're often upset about the consequences of sin. Maybe you've been here. Maybe you've encountered people like that. We'll be upset about our sin because of where our sin has brought us, right? Well, the, the, how our sin has hurt other people, and I'm so sorry I hurt you this way. Well, being sorry about the consequences of your sin is not the same thing as about being sorry about the sin itself. He comes to God and he's saying to him, I can't believe I've done this against you. You've only been good to me. You've only been kind and patient with me. How can I treat you like this? He hates the sin, not s- simply the consequences, which leads him to this Third, the sense of unworthiness. You see it in verse 19. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He, he will not go back to the father and appeal to his position. He's going to make no claims upon the father. His, his sin is so bad that he's not worthy to be his, his father's son. And, and he knows it. He takes, In other words, you, you see him taking responsibility. There's no excuses here. He's not going to go back and say, you know, dad, everything was going good, but this famine hit and that, listen, everybody's struggling. I was doing just fine until the famine came. No, there, there's no excuses. There's no blame shifting. He's broken. He doesn't try to pass the, Pass it off to someone else. We have this tendency, don't we, to to blame other people for our sin? When we confess sin, we really sometimes confess other people's sin. You know, I'm sorry I threw the TV out the window, but you make me so angry when you talk to me that way. It's not my fault that the TV's out on the grass. It's your fault if you didn't talk to me that way. It would never happen. I'm sorry I kicked the cat across the room, but you know, the traffic was terrible today. My boss chewed into me today. Right? It's not my fault it's the traffic. I'm really the good guy here. I'm the victim here. It's, the, it's my boss's fault. It's your fault. It's the, it's the traffic's fault. You know why we do this? Because we, we have a little bit of religion in us. You know, religion comes and says, God's going to bless me. God's going to take care of me if I have a good record. Doesn't it? So if I do what he tells me to do, and I, you know, I, I go where he go, uh, tells me to go, and I and I and I, I say the things he tells me to say, and I have this good record, then God, 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 kind of owes me. He, he's going to pay out. God's going to be good for me. This is how all religions work. All religions work this way, except Christianity. Here's the rules: keep them. If you keep them, God will bless you, right? And so, what happens if you lose your record? It's, it's your only hope. This is why religious people can't repent. You can't. Because if you repent, you admit you're bad. You admit I'm not worthy to be your son. You are you are getting rid of your entire basis of your confidence and hope, which is your record. Right? And so you protect yourself by shifting the blame onto some somebody else. You're not really at fault. You really have a good record, but it's someone else's fault. Right? And so I just need to preserve this record. Or the the other end is sometimes we just beat ourselves up. Right? We just say, you know, I'm so terrible. I'm the worst person in the world. And that's just a way to get back our good record. Because only good people would feel so bad about what we did. Right? So I'm really good because I feel bad. And and so what we're trying to do is get this record back before God. but But this man doesn't try to do any of that. True repentance doesn't do that. True repentance recognizes we have no record. I'm bad. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I said, well, where's our hope then? Our hope's in Christ's record, not our record. In fact, when we have Christ's record, we're free from having to prove ourselves. We're free from having to be right all the time. We're free from having to be the victim all the time. We're free from uh, everyone else being wrong all the time. It frees us from this blame shifting. It frees us from arg- arguing. We could take full responsibility because we appeal to Christ's record. And so this man has this, this beautiful... Um, confession and the sense of unworthiness and finally there's a plea for mercy he doesn't quite get forgiveness but he's getting there he says in verse 19 treat me as one of your hired servants you notice there's no bargain he's not going to bargain with his father he's not going to say listen i can work off this debt just give me a chance right i can make it right i'll prove myself to you he just goes and pleads for mercy he says "I, i i'm not worthy of anything will you will you at least make me your servant see repentance comes to the father with nothing but need, uh, no, with nothing but a plea. Will you help me? And so, this is what he said I'm going to say this, my father. And look in verse 20. And he rose and came to his father. So, there he goes. He's not worthy to be called a son. I love how Jesus puts it, but he goes to the father. In fact, even in verse 18, he says, You know, I'll, I'll say to my father, even though I'm not worthy to be your son, you're, that's his only hope. See, this is what repentance is. It's, it's coming home to the Father. Right? And, and this man comes. I, I wonder if he's perhaps thinking, how's it going to go? Don't you think he's got to be anxious? Nervous? Staring at the ground as he makes this long trek home, thinking it over. How's Dad going to receive me? What's it going to go like? Well, he doesn't have to wonder long, because we come to one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. A picture of the lavish grace of God on repentant sinners. Consider fourthly grace. What does grace look like? We see grace in five actions from the father in verse 20. We read, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. No, first of all, the father sees him the picture I have in mind's eye, the father is always looking for his son. Scanning the horizon. Is he coming home? Though the son may be gone, he has never left the father's heart. He, is, he may be lost, but he's never forgotten. You can imagine the father praying, God, will you please bring him home to me? Will you please keep him alive? Will you please reconcile us together? And one day, he sees down the road this figure walking towards him in rags, barefoot. But he looks familiar. And the closer he gets... He begins to write. Dads know their sons, right? That's my son. He saw him. And then secondly, you notice verse 20, the father loved. Jesus explains it this way. He felt compassion on him. So what does God feel like when the lost come home? What does God feel like when we come and say, I've sinned. Will you please forgive me? He feels disdain. No. Does he feel disappointment? Not really. You know what he feels ultimately, primarily, he feels compassion. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you will find Jesus' emotional life described over and over again. You'll see times when Jesus is angry. You'll see times when Jesus is sad. You'll see times when Jesus is filled with joy. And you take all the descriptions of the emotional life of Jesus and you put them all together. There is one emotion that describes Jesus more than all the other emotions combined. You know what it is? Compassion. Over and over and over again, he has compassion. And we see what the father's showing. He loved the son when he was lost. He loved the son when he broke his heart. He loved his son when his son hated him and squandered his inheritance and scandalized him. Even before we repent, even before we return, The Father loves us. He never stops loving us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's not that He gave His Son in order that He might love us. It's that His very love for us, even in our sin. Please understand that when you break God's heart, He loves you. He has compassion on you. He will not stop. In fact, you see, thirdly, the Father ran. He's not just compassion. He's moved by compassion. Now understand, in this culture, once again, I'm sure you've heard this before, middle-aged men of some dignity, they don't run. It's embarrassing. In fact, I I don't know any culture where it's honorable for an older man to run. I have to be honest, it's not pretty. Well, this man's running. A man of wealth, servants, hiking up his robes, bearing his legs, right? He's running. Why is he... Making a spectacle of himself. Where's your dignity, man? Why is he running? Well, my friends, there comes a time when something so dominates your heart. That your own dignity is the farthest thing from your mind. You could care less. That's what's going on. He's shaming himself and he doesn't care. That's my son. My son is home. And I'll tell you, this, this, you understand, Jesus is describing God. That's what your father is like. The holy God of the Bible whom the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the righteous one. The holy one is the God who runs to repentant sinners. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible where you will find God in a hurry. It's the only place. And he is in a hurry to do what? Give grace. Give grace. He is in a hurry to forgive the repentant sinner. That's what will get God up off the porch. That's what will get God running to you if you come with repentance in your heart. Now, I don't know if the boy knew why his dad was running. He may have had a different understanding. See his dad running down the road towards him. Never seen dad run in his life. He may be scared. You know, like his dad taking off his belt. Is that what's going on? Right? Is that a stick in his hand? Well, I don't think he had a wonder long and the closer his dad got with a smile on his face and his arms outstretched, yelling at the top of his lungs, my son, my son, my son. As he runs to him and Jesus says, fourthly, he embraces him. Literally, he falls on his neck. There's just a big pile of men out there in the road hugging each other and embracing each other. In my mind, the dad picks his son up with a bear hug and just hoists him in the air laughing and crying. See, God doesn't keep us at arm's length. He's not distant. He's not some dispassionate creator. He's not some emotionless deity. He is full of emotion. He is full of love. And Jesus just wants you to understand God in this way. And lastly, the father, he kisses him. In, in fact, the verb text is the continual tense. He keeps on kissing him, just kissing him, kissing. The, the son is prodigal with his dad's money, and the dad is prodigal with his kisses, right? And it's just over and over again in his love. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he once preached an entire sermon on the father kissing the prodigal son. A, a seven-point sermon, right? Uh <laughs> He said, God's, it shows God's great forgiveness, intimacy, assurance, comfort, joy, restoration, and love. It was just extraordinary. By the way, dads, granddads, be affectionate with your children. Especially your sons. Hug them. Kiss them. Don't, don't be a weak man. Be a strong man. But be a soft man. Be a tough man, yes. But be a tender man. Right? Don't embarrass them. Right? They hit a home run. You don't need to run into the dugout and give them a big old kiss on the cheek. Right. But you gotta give your children hugs. Wrap your arms around, them, kiss them on the head. Tell them daddy loves you. And they'll say, Stop it. They'll squirm. And they'll say, stop it, which is code for do it again. Right? Okay? <laughs> we have affectionate. And so this dad is kissing and hugging and running and loving and looking. Right? You say, Well, what's missing? What what's missing? I'll tell you what's missing scorn is missing right shame I told you so is missing I'm sit on the porch see his boy coming and say oh this ought to be good I think I'll just make him walk all this way I think I'll make him grovel a little bit let's see what he has to say for himself there. he doesn't ask for an accounting there's no where have you been it doesn't matter What matters is he's come home. J.C. Ryle put it this way. Let it be noted that the father does not say a single word to his son about his wickedness. There is neither rebuke nor reproof for the past, nor galing admonition for the present, nor irritating advice for the future. The one idea that is represented as filling his mind is joy that his son has come home. There may be a time for that, but not at this moment. And what Jesus wants you to understand, my my Christian brothers and sisters, my forgiven sinners, is this is your God. This is your Father. He does not reluctantly save you. He is overflowing in joy to pour out grace upon you. He wants to shower grace upon those who once lived in the pigsty of sin. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. You need to understand, I don't know what kind of character you have of God in your mind, but this is how Jesus describes Him. A God who wants to let His love explode in your life. You want to, you want to experience the explosive love and grace of God in your life. You want to know what the fuse is? The fuse is repentance. Repent and enter the kingdom of God jesus says even i tell you even if your entire life you've ignored god even if your entire life you hated god you cursed god as i did for 19 years you wanted nothing to do with god the moment you take those steps to him he comes running to you with grace with mercy with forgiveness even when it cost him you think this is easy for him to do i tell you forgiveness is sacrificial I want you to hear this, Christians, because you and I are called to forgive as we have been forgiven. Think about how this boy has wronged his father. He's wronged him financially. He has permanently lowered the family's economic status. He has wronged his father socially. He has disgraced his father, not in an individualistic American culture, but in a communal honor culture. His father is no longer respected in his community. He is a shame. He is a fraud. To all those who once held him in high esteem. He has harmed him relationally. He has fractured the family. He's right. He doesn't deserve to be his son. He doesn't deserve any more of his father's resources. The father will give him both. And in doing so, the father must absorb the debt. Right? He's not going to get his money back. He's not going to get his reputation back. The father will have to pay that. You see, when you are wrong, when people sin against you, there is a debt. They might rob you of your happiness. They might rob you of your peace. They might hurt your reputation, right? There's always a debt. There's always, that's what sin is. There's always a debt that incurs. And often we want to make them pay it back. Well, if you did this, then I want to rob you of a little bit of happiness. I want to hurt your reputation. Listen, there are two, two, two ways to respond every time when someone sins against you. One way is to make them pay the debt. The other way is for you to pay the debt. But someone has to pay the debt. Always. There's always a debt. Someone has to pay. That's why forgiveness is hard. Because forgiveness will always cost you something. Forgiveness will absorb the pain rather than inflict it. I will take it. I will take the wrong against me. That's why forgiveness is always a form of suffering. You hear that? Forgiveness is always a form of suffering. It is always sacrificial. In fact, this man opened himself up to be hurt again, didn't he? He runs to his son knowing he might be hurt again. He said, well, this is what forgiveness. He say, well, how can I forgive like that? How can how can I absorb that kind of debt? Well, I'll tell you, Christian, you can only can when you see that God has done this for you. Because I'll tell you, Jesus just didn't lose a little bit of dignity. He lost his glory. He didn't just bare His legs. He was stripped naked when He was nailed to the cross. He ran from heaven to earth, not wondering if we would hurt Him again, but knowing full well that we would. Why does He come? To pay my debt. To pay your debt. He does not stand on the porch and say, I'll just let you walk to heaven. He comes to get us. He runs from heaven and earth not to inflict pain, but to absorb it. Why? So that He might embrace you. So that He might kiss you. So that He might welcome you home. And I'll tell you, if Jesus is your Lord, one day, literally, not figuratively, you will walk home and Jesus will wrap His arms around you and He will say to you, Welcome home. Welcome home. Because He paid your debt christian the degree into which you see what god has done for you through christ is the degree in which your life shall be transformed that you can live like that and you say i will absorb the pain i won't inflict it because of what god has done for me because of the grace i received but what's amazing is that the grace is not the end. The grace is just the doorway, right? The forgiveness is a doorway to get us somewhere, to get us home. So lastly, consider salvation. Consider where we end. When we see three beautiful pictures of salvation, as Jesus finishes this part of the story, we first of all see the son's restoration in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. Heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right? He finally gets his speech out. After all the hugging and the kissing, he finally says, Dad, i got something to tell you. And he, and he, and he begins his sinner's prayer, right? This is a sinner's prayer. Uh, this is what I've done. Uh, this, is, this is who I am. And, but before he can finish it, before he can say, make me a servant, and his father interrupts him. Not to scold him. Not to say, you're right, you're a fool. You know how bad I look? But look what he does. He won't let him finish. All he hears is, I'm not worthy. I've sinned. I'm not worthy. That's enough for him. Verse 22, but the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, right? He doesn't, he just totally ignores the son's argument and he says, quick, he needs a robe and a ring and some shoes. And all of these are symbolic of his restoration. He bring the best robe, Jesus says, the father, um, tells the servant, the long flowing garment, the stately attire, the formal wear. We're going to get these rags off him, put the best robe on him, put a ring on his hand. This will be the family ring, the signet ring. This is the ring that you need in order to do business. In a sense, the father is saying, look at his need. We need to add him back to the accounts. We need to bring him back to the family. Put a ring on his finger and Lastly, he says, put shoes on his feet. You know, in this culture, slaves were barefoot. Free people wore shoes. And so this boy was so desperate that he had to sell his shoes. He's humiliated. It's a picture of his bondage. And every barefoot step home he reminded how he had how he screwed everything up. If I could use that word, he'd sin against his father. Look what I've done. And his father sees his shoes and says, Quick, someone put some shoes on. My son will go barefoot no longer. And there's sandals on his feet and a robe on his shoulders and a ring on his finger. Why? Because he was his son. Full, lavish, prodigal restoration back into the family. The son is restored. And then the household begins to celebrate. Every one of these parables we see, Jesus says, there's always a celebration when sinners receive grace. Verse 23. And... Bring the fat calf, he says, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Now, see the fat calf. Listen, they didn't eat meat normally. You know, we eat meat every day, don't we? They didn't eat meat. It was a special occasion that they would eat meat. Like many cultures, by the way, today. I remember about a decade ago, I was on a mission trip in southern Mexico, up to the Zochis Indians in in the mountains, and they didn't they didn't speak Spanish, so our translator had a translator. Very remote people, and we showed up in their village, and they started killing chickens, I mean, just chickens being slaughtered everywhere, and and they start making these uh, enchiladas, and uh, they, don't use, they use the whole chicken, right? We just use parts of the chicken, right? No, they use the, and evidently the head is the best part of the chicken. And so the, the pastor received the chicken head enchilada. I tell you, the beak sticking out of the enchilada. And this is, uh, you know, we really want to honor you. Here's the chicken head, okay? This is what, what they did. Well, this the, this, the fatted calf is better than the chicken head. This is what's reserved for weddings. This is is a very special animal. It could feed 75 people. It could feed an entire village. And he says, it's time to kill the fatted calf. And what we see is that that God is not some, as we've already seen, a stoic deity. This boy has screwed up his life. And he's thinking, well, maybe he'll take me back. Maybe I could become a servant. And the father's saying, maybe. What are you talking about? I'm throwing a party. We are going to celebrate. Because God delights to show mercy to the repentant. Can't you understand why tax collectors are coming to Him and sinners? I don't know what else they thought when they heard this story, because they know full well they are the ones who have taken what the, God has given them and squandered it and now find themselves in their bondage to sin. And Jesus says, Listen, if you come to me with repentance in your heart, we'll start up the grill. We are going to celebrate. What, what, what hope do we have in the far country? What hope do we have after we wasted everything? What hope do we have when we slop in the pigpen of rebellion? We, the hope is that there's a God who not only will shower us with grace, but He will welcome us home with celebration in His heart. In fact, believe it or not, Jesus says... He must celebrate; it, it's, it has to happen. Look at verse thirty-two. We'll consider this next week, God willing. But the father says to the older brother, "It was fitting to celebrate." In other, literally, he says, "We had to celebrate; I had no choice in the matter." Why? Verse twenty-four: uh, "For my son was dead and is alive again; he was lost and is found." And they begin to celebrate. You notice, lastly, the father's declaration: "This is my son." I think that's the greatest gift this boy gets. Far better than shoes or robe or even a party. This is my son. Right? Because, because he was right. He's not worthy to be called a son. He wished his father was dead. He renounced his sonship. And the father the father to the father, he was never anything but what? His son. Even in his rebellion. He says, I'll be your servant. Request denied. You are my son. You will never be a servant to me. You are mine. You are in my home. He, he says, even beyond that, my son was dead. I mean, he never thought he'd see him again. Could you imagine if, if a child left and you, you don't know where they're living or what they're doing? They've been gone for years and one day they show up with brokenness saying, Dad, will you, will you welcome me home? Can I come home, please? And his father says, absolutely. Because why? You are my son. I wonder if there might be a lost son here today. Maybe a lost daughter. Please understand that God will take the repentant, clothe them with a robe, and ring, and shoes, celebration. There will be a declaration. You are you are mine. You can come home right now. I'll tell you right now. You, take, you just take that one step. You just pray to God right now. God, I'm so sorry. I made such a mess in my life. I want to come home. You take that one step, He will come running to you right now by His Spirit and bring you back home. He said, how can He do that? I mean, I thought God's righteous, right? What, are you to brush over sin? I don't worry about it? I mean, that's the accusation of the older brother we'll see next week, right? right the, the religious brother says, Dad, we're just going to forget that this all happened? You don't understand what He's done to us? Right, there's a religious son, and there's a rebellious son. But let me tell you, there's a third son. He's not in this story. Let me introduce him to you as we close. He is the righteous son. And while the rebellious son is crying out to the father, and the father receives him and robes him and feasts him, he does so only because the righteous son came. And when the righteous son cried out to the father, the father run to him with an embrace. Run to him with a kiss? No. There was silence. He wasn't robed. His robe was taken. He wasn't feasted. He was given vinegar to drink. He didn't have sandals for his feet. Just nails through them. And it is because only the righteous son was rejected that we, the rebellious or the religious, can be accepted. This is why we can say with the authority of the Bible, there is no sin too wicked. There is no country too far. There is no shame too great. There is no eye too filthy that he will not welcome you home if you will repent and say, Dad, I want to come home the bible says if you confess with your mouth that jesus lord i, I give my life to you i surrender you're my king and, and and um and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead i believe you're the son of god who died for me and rose triumphantly the bible says you'll be saved you'll be welcome home god will will shower you with grace and love and forgiveness forever and ever and for my christian brothers and sisters do you see the the do you see your prodigal father Do you see His lavish love and grace and mercy for you? How then can we not give that to others? Let this transform you. Let you be so captured by the love that which God has for you that you say, Father, I want to be just like You. Help me. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for This incredible and heart capturing story. It's it's too good to be true if Jesus did not teach it. And I trust there are many here who could resonate with this. That we once were in the pigsty of our sin. And by your grace, we came to ourselves and came home and we received grace, forgiveness, and love. We received a homecoming. Thank you, Father. Help us to transform us. Help us to be the most forgiving people in this world. Not because we are good, but because you are good. That we we be willing to pay any debt because the debt in which you paid for us far exceeds anything that one could owe us. And Father, we pray for our friends here maybe one, maybe more, living, maybe only known to them in the far country. They feel enslaved to their sin. Will you please, even now by your Spirit, will you awaken them to their lostness? Will you place repentance in their heart that they might come home to a God who is prodigal in His grace, love, and mercy? We ask it for your glory and in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stay-